So, Leanne, it's a new year. There's a new Speaker of the House. Would you say there's a new vibe on Capitol Hill this year? (laughs) Absolutely. Everything's different on Capitol Hill this year. Of course, the attention is now on House Republicans. They have not had the majority for two Congresses, so four years. Leanne Caldwell covers Congress for The Post. And she says the 118th Congress has gotten off to a chaotic start. So the Congress started with a very contentious vote for, or I should say votes, for Kevin McCarthy to become Speaker of the House. It took 15 rounds, four days of voting, intense negotiations. And then after he finally got it, it rolled right into drama over committee assignments, who's going to sit on committees, who is going to be kicked off their committees. If you got the briefing I got from the FBI, you wouldn't have Swalwell on any committee. This is some Bakersfield BS. And then, of course, we have the debate over lifting the debt limit and Republicans making demands because they want to reduce what they say is runaway government spending. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Arjun Singh. I'm your guest host today. It's Thursday, February 2nd. Today, we're unpacking what's going on with committee assignments, the debt ceiling fight, and a House speaker who has a very precarious hold on power. I want to go back to what happened earlier in the year. Speaker Kevin McCarthy had to go through this marathon 15-round voting process just to become speaker. And my understanding was that some of the holdouts on the far right who initially didn't vote for him were demanding a series of concessions. Can you talk a little bit about what those concessions were? And did McCarthy eventually agree to them? Is that why he's the speaker now? Well, we actually don't know what all the concessions are. It is being described to me by my sources that it is more like a gentleman's agreement, a handshake agreement between McCarthy and the people who were making demands of him in exchange for their votes. But we do know a few. A lot of it is committee-related. There are members on the far right who wanted more spots on committees, and a lot of it is how the House functions to take power away from the Speaker of the House, to give more power to the rank-and-file members, and the other tranche is budget-related. It's interesting to me that committee assignments were one element that were being negotiated. And I'm wondering if you could put your schoolhouse rock hat on for a second and just explain what are these committees in the House and why do we hear every time there's a new Congress all of this chatter about who's going to be a committee chair and who's going to get to serve on a committee? Yeah. So committees are groups of people who are assigned to have legislative jurisdiction. 
For example, the Appropriations Committee, they determine how the money is spent, which federal agency gets how much money. You have the Ways and Means Committee that oversees tax law and tax policy. You have the Education and Labor and Workforce Committee that oversees government pensions. You have the Energy Committee that oversees Department of Energy, a little bit of the EPA. So there are different committees that have jurisdictions over different federal agencies and then also have legislative power to write legislation within their jurisdiction. And that's what committees are. And so members want to be on committees based on their interests, based on what sort of legislation they want to write. And then there's the other committees like the Oversight Committee, for example. A Republican lawmaker just described it to me as the Cable News Committee. It actually writes no legislation, but the people on that committee, those are the fire breathers. You know, on the left, you have Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. On the right, you have Marjorie Taylor Greene, who is on that committee. You have Lauren Boebert. And so this committee are the people who are partisan, who like a fight, and who defend their party. They are the ones who are going to investigate the Biden administration. So you have different committees that have different things that they do. And the reason members want more representation on committees, especially if you're on the far right, who have really kind of over the years been shunned off of some of these committees because they want to influence the legislative process and they want to influence the messaging and they want to influence the oversight and the focus of the Republican Party. It seems like there's already quite a bit of animosity going into this Congress, and it's only just beginning. I'm talking about the fact that Kevin McCarthy has already said that he plans not to seat three Democrats on their committees. That's Representatives Adam Schiff, Eric Swalwell, and Elon Omar. Can you explain the context of why this is happening? Why is it these three Democrats that are within McCarthy's ire right now? Well, a lot of it is retribution and revenge because Democrats kicked two Republicans off their committees in the last Congress. The House voted to remove Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments. All Democrats and 11 Republicans voted for the measure because of Greene's past embracing of conspiracy theories. Marjorie Taylor Greene, for a multitude of reasons, for depicting violence against Nancy Pelosi, for anti-Semitic remarks, and Paul Gosar of Arizona for releasing a violent video that showed the murder of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Republican Paul Gosar posted an anime video depicting himself flying through the air and killing Democrat Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and then heading for President Biden wielding two swords. So really graphic stuff and Democrats voted and kicked them off their committees. So a lot of this is revenge. Now that Republicans are in control, they have chosen the three people who Republicans like the least and who have been controversial in some respects. One is Adam Schiff, the top Democrat on the Intelligence Committee. 
Good morning. Um, I'm Congressman Adam Schiff, and we Republicans are kicking him off because they say that he lied during the impeachment, first impeachment of Donald Trump, that he sold the American public a bill of goods, that there was Russian collusion, and he should not have access to classified material. But the hypocrisy just grabs you by the throat. As far as Eric Swalwell, he is someone who is very aggressive in attacking Republicans and the former president, who is also on the Intelligence Committee. They are saying he should not have access to classified material. And they are citing an acquaintance of his who is an alleged Chinese spy. We had a Chinese woman volunteer for the campaign starting in 2012. FBI came to me and told me this person is not who you and your team think they are. We worked with them. The FBI three times said no wrongdoing. All he did was help us. There's no allegation of any wrongdoing whatsoever, but Republicans want to kick him off his committee. And then, of course, there's Ilan Omar on the Foreign Relations Committee. They cite anti-Semitic remarks from Ilhan Omar, and that's a reason she should not sit on that committee. I have uh, addressed it. I've apologized. Um, It's been... Um, two and a half terms ago. Well, and another member of Congress that I have personally been very fascinated with is George Santos, the new freshman from New York. And I understand that he has voluntarily taken himself off of committee assignments. Can you catch us up on what has been the latest of the George Santos saga in Congress? And do we have any idea where this voluntary decision came from? So George Santos, as we all know now, has told many, many, many lies, fabricated almost every aspect of his biography, of what he ran on, who he is. So we don't really know who the real George Santos is, but he does come to work every single day. He shows up at Republican meetings. He votes every day. He definitely does not hide. Why? Why are you confident you'll be clear? I have nothing to hide. From the media, from his colleagues, he is engaged in his job, whatever that is. And so... There have been some Republican members, including from the New York delegation, who have called for Santos to resign. He has refused to resign. Congressman Santos, will you resign? I will not. Will you step down? I will not. And he had a meeting with Speaker McCarthy on Monday, and they talked about the situation. And I am told by sources who were familiar with the meeting that they talked about a variety of scenarios. I think it was an appropriate decision that until he can clear everything up, he's off the committees right now. Was that something that you asked him in the meeting? We had a discussion and he, he, he asked me if he could do that. So I think it was the appropriate decision. And it was actually Santos who suggested that he step aside from his committees, but those committee slots be held open for him until he is cleared by the House Ethics Committee for any wrongdoing, whether that is investigating allegations of wrongdoing with campaign finance and other things. 
So this was, I am told by sources, and Santos says it himself, that it was his idea. McCarthy agreed, and Santos told his colleagues that he was going to do this, and he did not want to be a distraction, that he was a distraction and he didn't want to do that. And so that's kind of where this stands. This also happened on a Tuesday morning when Santos made this announcement to his colleagues. And then later that day is when McCarthy moved forward and seemed to have gotten the votes to remove Omar from her committee. I am told the two issues are not connected, but the order of events shows that clearing Santos from his committee, as there were many concerns from Republicans, did seem to open up, whether directly or indirectly, with kicking Omar off her committee. After the break, we'll turn to another thing plaguing Kevin McCarthy, the debt ceiling. We'll be right back. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com. So while Kevin McCarthy is dealing with all of this negotiating and drama inside the House of Representatives, I know that also on his agenda and Congress's agenda at large is dealing with the debt ceiling that we've been hearing a lot about. Before we get more into kind of what needs to happen, can you remind us what exactly is the debt ceiling and why have we been hearing about it in the news a lot lately? So – The debt limit is something that was created in the early 1900s. It is basically paying the country's credit cards. It's not about future spending. It's about past spending. So say like I have a $15,000 cap on my credit card. Well, when I hit that $15,000 cap, I can't use my credit card anymore. And that's exactly what the debt limit is. When the debt limit is maxed out, the country can't pay its bills, can't spend any more money. The country's debt limit is $31.4 trillion. The country has already hit that. The Treasury Department is doing some monetary magic to ensure that the government can keep paying its credit card bills for the time being. But they run out of options really soon, in probably June, maybe July. And so we have this fight over and over again. The debt limit has been lifted many, many times, nearly 80 times in the last several decades. More times actually under Republican administrations than Democratic administrations. It's always a fight. 
But sometimes it's a bigger fight than other times. And it is usually the biggest fight when there is a Democratic president and a Republican House of Representatives. And that's the situation we found ourselves in in 1995 when it was a massive fight. It's a situation we found ourselves in in 2011 when actually the country's credit rating was downgraded because the country almost did default. And the political divided government is the same now. Democratic president, Republican House, a new Republican House who is really intent on cutting government spending. And so that is what the debt limit is. It's about paying the bills. And the bills cannot be paid until the credit card limit is increased. When you say that we're paying the bills, do you have an idea of who or what the U.S. is paying the bills to? I imagine they don't have a Capital One card like I do. (laughs) No, uh, the Fed is their credit card. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, I mean, every single thing that the country does has a cost. They are also having to pay our lenders and paying interest on our debt. And that's why people say that it could be so catastrophic if the country defaults because our lenders, other countries, mostly China, would not want to do business with the United States and would no longer lend us money. And it's different from a government shutdown. The country has been through many government shutdowns and people are still getting their government support. Things are still mostly functioning But this will be different. People who are on Medicaid will not be able to receive their Medicaid reimbursements or payments. People who get disability checks, those will stop immediately. People will not be able to get their Social Security checks. And so that's a very practical impact nationally. Globally, what we are paying to our lenders helps the global economy function. And if we're not making those payments, then that is going to be disastrous and catastrophic. People say Wall Street will have zero confidence in the government. People's 401ks could disappear. Every economist predicts that the stock market would crash, that markets around the world would crash. I mean, it's just a ripple effect that you almost can't even comprehend. But the warnings coming from the Treasury Department and the warnings coming from economists are just really loud, bright sirens. And they say, don't try it. (laughs) Well, this week, I know that Kevin McCarthy went to meet President Biden at the White House What exactly would you describe as the two different camps and what do they disagree on? Is there a reason to feel optimism that President Biden and McCarthy are having face-to-face meetings about this right now? So it's still early. I know June does not seem that far away with um, such a catastrophic prediction of what could happen. But in Washington time, unfortunately, it's still very early. There is a lot of time. I'm not in a place that I'm going to point fingers. I'm in a place of being the Speaker of the House. My role right now is to make sure we have a sensible, responsible ability to raise the debt ceiling, but not continue this runaway spending. 
Kevin McCarthy is saying that he will not provide the votes to lift the debt limit until there is a a way to reduce government spending. He says those two things have to go hand in hand. Government spending is out of control, and he is using the debt limit as leverage to reduce government spending. So one more time, House Republicans, show us your plan. You have an obligation to be transparent with the American people. And if you don't have the votes to pass a plan, let's just get the debt ceiling done. The Democrats, President Biden and Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer are on the same page saying the debt limit needs to be lifted and separately we can have a conversation about government spending. They say that they will not negotiate budget cuts, government spending cuts, alongside the debt limit. And so one side says they want to negotiate. The other side says they don't, that they don't want the debt limit to be held hostage for Republican priorities. Is it a good sign that Kevin McCarthy is going to meet with President Biden? Sure. Uh, Will there be anything that comes from it immediately? Probably not. Part of the reason is Kevin McCarthy had to agree to a lot of demands to become Speaker of the House, especially regarding government spending. And so a lot of his members also have a lot of different ideas on what to cut in the government. And so he is going to have to find agreement among his members about a plan forward. And that's another reason Democrats are saying that they're not going to negotiate, especially at this point, because the Republicans are not on the same page and have not agreed to or presented anything that they want. You know, we've talked a lot about the small group of far-right Republicans who have had an outside-seeming influence on a lot of what's been happening. But in this kind of a negotiation, I'm very curious because, like you said, Kevin McCarthy has an admittedly small margin for a majority. Is there any possibility that more moderate Republicans could break with their caucus and actually forge a deal with Democrats in the House to be able to pass a debt ceiling increase? That is absolutely a possibility. And I do know that conversations are happening as we speak. There's no plan yet. So it's still very early. When things get really close and really tense, perhaps a deal is going to present itself. Maybe that's coming from rank and file moderate members. Maybe that is coming from leadership. And To be quite honest, anything that passes has to have 218 votes in the House, whether that's 218 Republicans or a combination of Republicans and Democrats. Also has to find 60 votes in the Senate, so has to find at least nine Republicans in the Senate because there are 51 Democrats. And so this divided government makes it much, much more complicated. Perhaps McCarthy can find something that passes the House, but could it pass the Senate? That's a whole other question. McCarthy is definitely going to be put to the test on how he manages his Republican conference and how he manages a very complicated and important and potentially catastrophic negotiation. 
All right, Leanne. Well, I look forward to checking back in with you later as this negotiation continues. Best of luck on the Hill, and thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thanks for having me, Arjun. Leanne Caldwell covers Congress for The Post. She's also an author of the Early 202 newsletter and an anchor for Washington Post Live. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Eliza Dennis. It was mixed by Sam Baer and edited by Maggie Penman. If you don't already follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts, please follow us, rate and review us, and share this episode with someone you know who would enjoy it. I'm Arjun Singh. Happy Groundhog Day, and remember, it's never too early for flapjacks. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.